0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. This is volume 29 of the 20th Century Movie Club. Uh, This is your co-host, Mike Scott, once again flying solo here uh, as your host. But as always, I have brought on a special guest to help me out and to make sure that uh, you're not just listening to me blather on by myself. So I would like to welcome very good friend of the podcast, very dedicated listener, and just all-around good human being, Carmelita Valdez-McCoy. Carmelita, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you. What a wonderful
0: introduction.
1: I don't know if I earned all that, but I am so happy to be here, and Dana is always with us in spirit, and we're going to have fun talking movies today.
0: Yep, we are, and uh, for those who may not have uh, seen the news, we try to keep these evergreen So I don't like to date him too much, but for people that haven't seen the news, Dana, uh, part of the reason he is so busy is he now has a new show on Dash Radio called Hollywood Unfiltered, where he is going to be talking about all the things that are going on in Hollywood, uh, and uh, so you can check out his dulcet tones there as well. Which is why you're not seeing him as much on this, because the man's only got so many hours in the day. Please, everybody, check out the Dash radio app. It is 100% free, uh, commercial free. They have over 80 streaming radio stations, and you can find Dana's new show there. Carmelita, as you know, we always have the guest pick the theme. So what theme did you come up with for this episode of the 20th Century Movie Club?
1: I am so excited for this theme. Maybe a little too excited. My, my nerd is showing. I want to talk about fantasy films.
0: I love this pick. I love fantasy films. Um, for those who may need a quick refresher, fantasy typically entails a, uh, you know, not always, but a medieval setting, uh, usually involving witches and wizards and sorcerers and all sorts of stuff like that. Although the genre term is, is very loose because I know plenty of people, myself included, who consider Star Wars fantasy far more than it is actually sci fi. Uh, what do you think of, of that supposition, Carmelita?
1: I mean, I kind of agree. It is, you know, I like when people call it a space opera because I think that that's, that's pretty accurate. It's set in space, and of course, you've got the technology that enables human beings to be in space, but it is very much of a piece with fairy tales and legends and epic heroic quests, and it has all those elements. And I think that's that's part of why I wanted to do this genre. Once upon a time, before Peter Jackson adapted the Lord of the Rings trilogy... Fantasy was a genre, I think, that a lot of people saw as being juvenile, meant for kids, or meant for nerds. And that used to be a derogatory term. (laughs) We kind of embrace it now, but it didn't used to be something that people embraced so uh, proudly. I, I feel like these stories, fantasy genre, it's legends and all these mythical tales that touch on these themes of cosmic justice and adventure and romance and the struggle of life and death. And all of those things are still relevant to the human condition, even though the worlds depicted in these stories are very different from the world we live in today. I I think that there's something really wonderful about immersing yourself in these fantasy realms. And we get to kind of work out the human condition through these stories. And I, I just love that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the best fantasy definitely uses these really elaborate settings to tell something about, uh, you know, I, I, it's not a movie and it's technically it's urban fantasy, but I, I think of, you know, our shared love of Buffy, the vampire slayer, the way mm-hmm. that used really fantastical things to tell, very, very human stories. Um, and, and I really do think that that is when fantasy is at its best. That is what it can do. I will give people a heads up that most of my recommendations are not that highbrow. But nonetheless, uh, that is what fantasy can do.
1: No, but that's great. And and one thing I, I hope that if for any listeners who aren't well versed in the fantasy genre or aren't sure if they really care about fantasy films, I would say, you know, your level of investment it's really it's really up to you how invested you choose to get into the world building and the lore. It's okay to watch a fantasy film and just watch it for battles and romance and the cool special effects. It's okay just to be entertained for an hour and a half, 2 hours and then go on about your business. Others want to get really invested in lore and they want to learn fictional languages and they want to read all the supplemental materials. And that's great, too. I think fantasy is really open for the viewer to choose the level of immersion that they want.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. So uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. As a quick refresh for everybody that uh, uh, may have forgotten or this is your first time listening, the way this uh, show works is we each pick three movies plus one wild card in case we pick the same movie. Uh, And we will go in turn and talk about our our recommendations. And again, all movies have to be before the year 2000. Carmelita, the guest, always gets the floor first. So why don't you tell us what your first pick is?
1: For friends and family, for people that know me well, and people that follow me on social media, this first pick is not going to be a surprise. It is the 1985 Dark Fairy Tale Legend, directed by Ridley Scott, uh, written by William Jortsberg, it stars Tom Cruise as Jack, this uh, a young man of the forest. Mia Sarah plays Lily; she's kind of vaguely a princess, and Tim Curry in a truly memorable role as Darkness. You know, this story is set in this really magical place. It's a very kind of vague location we don't ever get a name for the kingdom or the realm there's swords and there's armor and chainmail and all of that great stuff but it is really a setting that's kind of in this parallel universe and anyone who is familiar with Ridley Scott's other films knows just what a tremendous job he does at world building and and bringing in the right people to do effects and and create these beautiful elaborate sets which is what they did here and in this story tom cruise as jack uh this boy of the forest and his companions they set out to restore the cosmic balance between light and darkness Um, he has a love interest in mia sarah's lily and they they're on this quest to restore the sun through magical means, and he has all of these forest dwelling companions, fairies and dwarves. And there's a figure named Gump who's almost like a pan figure. It's a really cool look to this movie light and shadow and blue lights. There is glitter everywhere. This movie is covered in glitter and bubbles and little like dust particles and feathers. Floating through the light. It's very ethereal. This movie was not a commercial success. Uh, but it does have a cult following. It did get nominated for various makeup and effects awards. BAFTA, Saturn, the Oscars. Um, it had a troubled production. Lots of script edits. A $10 million set at Pinewood Studios burned down. And they had to rebuild. There's also there's three different versions of this movie. There's a director's cut. There's a European version which has a jerry goldsmith score and it's kind of a a more traditional orchestral score and then there's the u.s release which has a score by the electronic ambient artists tangerine dream it's just a
0: really magical gorgeous movie Tell me you've seen it. please. Oh, of course I have. I um, <laughs> I, I would like to say that I would have been surprised uh, if you recommended <laughs> this, but I was not. I'm yeah. glad you brought it up because the first question that popped into my mind when you recommended this was, have you seen the various versions? I know they released, I don't know if it's on Blu-ray, but I know they released on DVD a, a set probably 10, 12 years ago that had both the director's cut and the U.S. cut. Have you seen the various versions, and which version would you actually recommend to people?
1: So I have, and I can confirm that the Blu-ray Ultimate Edition does include the director's cut and the U.S. theatrical release. You know, I grew up with the U.S. theatrical release, and, you know, I never would have thought to even explore other versions because i just love the tangerine dream score it's so ethereal is just really the word for it and it's so unconventional for a fantasy film to have an electronic score like that but there are things about the director's cut that i really enjoy it has a a few more of the traditional fantasy elements that folks who are well-versed in Tolkien and, and other fantasy writers will be aware of. There's more riddles and there's more songs, like in-universe songs, characters singing. There are three different endings for this film that are... Honestly, I it's hard to pick one that I prefer. I really do like the ending of the director's cut. I think it in a lot of ways is more in keeping with this story because this is a story there's a lot of gray well i think a lot of times we equate fantasy with black and white thinking good guys bad guys and and legend this story has a lot of very kind of our heroes have a lot of kind of questionable actions or motives even though they are ultimately working for the good you can you can kind of take them to task for some of their approaches to things. But the US theatrical release is my kind of my first love because it's it's the version I fell in love with. So I would say to anyone, uh, check them both out, see which one you prefer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the right way to go. I I tend to actually uh, I like Tangerine Dream fine, but as you know from listening to the Rambo retrospective we did, I friggin ride or die for jerry goldsmith so i i i have some affinity for the director's cut but uh, i mean even the director's cuts only two hours long so we're not talking a big time investment to watch both of them and the movie is just so visually sumptuous is the best word that i can think of that you're not really losing anything by watching both versions um you did mention him you mentioned his accolades We really got to talk about Tim Curry here. I mean, this is, you want to talk about a fairly well-known actor completely disappearing into a role. I first saw this when I was a kid. It was on HBO because, again, I've mentioned many a times before my parents had some fairly flexible uh, boundaries when it came to movies. I had already seen the Rocky Horror Picture Show, so I was very familiar with what Tim Curry looked like. And I just absolutely refused to believe for months. I think until my mom like showed me a Fangoria or something where they were showing him going through all the makeup that this was Tim Curry playing The Darkness. It's such an astounding performance under what just had to be hundreds of pounds of makeup. I don't think this is one of Tom Cruise's best performances. I think he's a little bland just surprising but i think the movie just for tim curry alone demands to be seen
1: i'm with you on that a thousand percent tim curry is really yeah i mean he's just captivating in this role and this is one of those films where i mean i won't speak for everybody but i know for me and and my siblings watching this growing up i mean we kind of wanted darkness to win because he's just so charismatic. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't in I didn't entirely care if the good guys lost because Tim Curry's darkness was just so fabulous. And and I agree with you on Tom Cruise, you know, this isn't this isn't a real breakout role for him. It's a serviceable performance, it's fine. He's still pretty young here. And I would say for Tom Cruise fans, if you haven't seen this film, I mean, he'll never do another role like this again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's very much a moment in time. It it definitely, because it falls in that weird three or four years between Risky Business and Top Gun, right? Because this was 85, the very Mm -hmm. next year, he blows up. I mean, he becomes Tom Cruise. And, And in that time period, he was doing some more interesting... Not not that he doesn't do. I mean, I'm well on record as being a diehard Tom Cruise fan. But he was definitely in a place in his career where he was taking more challenging roles that didn't just... He wasn't yet Tom Cruise, so he didn't have to be Tom Cruise. You know, I'm thinking of the fact that, like, he did all the right moves... And this within just a couple of years of one another. And and you don't see that kind of variation between his roles now or even really any time in the last 30 years. Um, and so I, I do think that this is an interesting time in his career and it, it is worth checking out. I do also want to shout out, I, like many people, absolutely fell in love with Mia Sara in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and she is just as radiant in this one as she is in that movie. So if you're a big Mia Sara fan and you haven't seen this one, you really owe it to yourself to check it out.
1: Oh, she's great in this. I I love that she, she has all the all of that classical beauty she looks like a princess she looks the part and early on in the film as she's she's dressed in these very lovely medieval looking costumes and her hair is in curls and she's just gorgeous and there's as the film goes on you see that there's there's some complexity to her character she's not just a damsel in distress there's a little more to her there's more underneath the surface and it's 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 a really fun character to watch.
0: Yep, I agree. Anything else you want to add about Legend?
1: No, no. Just, I would say you can watch it in standard definition. You can watch it in high definition. The Blu-ray is gorgeous. I mean, it just, all the colors. And you use the word sumptuous, and that is exactly what it is, visually.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that's, you know, that's kind of Ridley Scott's bread and butter, especially in the 80s, so... All right. Well, for my first pick, uh, we're going to go from one troubled production to another. And and part of the reason that I brought up Star Wars as being fantasy is because when you mentioned fantasy, this was the first movie that popped into my mind. And technically, I think some people might consider it sci-fi, although I think if you see the movie... There's really no other way to describe it than fantasy um, or, like you said, space opera. And so my first pick, I am going with the similarly visually sumptuous while flawed 1980 Mike Hodges film, Flash Gordon. So for those who haven't seen Flash Gordon, Flash Gordon is obviously uh, based on the long running serial that I believe started in the 1930s, had a series of, of movies in the 30s, and uh, has kind of been a cultural icon for a century at this point. And in 1980, Dino De Laurentiis and director Mike Hodges, who would later go on to direct several famous British crime dramas. He got to start making British crime dramas, including Get Carter. He would go back to that. This was really kind of his one time stepping into, like we see now, right, with Marvel. You make a good indie movie Mm -hmm. and Marvel snatches you up. This was kind of Mike Hodges doing a Marvel movie before Marvel stars Sam J. Jones, Melody Anderson, and most importantly, the almighty Max von Sydow as Ming the Merciless. Flash Gordon basically is about the story of a football player, a reporter, and a scientist who uh, fly in a spaceship and crash land on a planet called Mongo, where Flash ends up ultimately becoming the champion of the people against the evil Ming the Merciless. Carmelita, have you seen Flash Gordon?
1: it makes absolutely no sense that i have not seen this movie but i have not seen this movie i'm so i'm aware of like the visuals like i recognize stills from this i know it's flash gordon but i've never actually seen it from start to finish
0: and it it does make no sense because i think this movie's right up your alley <laughs> so i'll be honest with everybody look flash gordon is kind of a mess of a movie sam j jones who would go on to have a pretty decent career And even kind of lampoon his role in this, if you've seen Ted. He ended up leaving the film just as post-production was starting. So, because he had a dispute with De Laurentiis, they ended up bringing in another actor to overdub most of his lines. It's not that noticeable, but if you're aware of it, it becomes very noticeable. Melody Anderson is not fantastic, but... This is one of those movies where the money's on the screen, y'all. Everything about this movie is absolutely beautiful. On top of that, some of the supporting cast is really spectacular. Timothy Dalton plays Prince Baron, the rightful heir of Mongo, and the almighty Brian Blessed, which if you're at all online, his last name is always all capitalized because he's just a boisterous British man. Plays Prince Volton, the uh the leader of the winged people who are oppressed and at war with Ming. The biggest reason to watch this movie. So we talked a little bit about, you know, Tangerine Dream and Jerry Goldsmith. I'm not sure that I can think of a movie where the soundtrack is doing more work to make the movie a classic. For those who don't know, the soundtrack, the score, most of the music is by Queen. You've probably, even if you've never seen the movie, have probably heard the theme song and that bass line, that... And I am telling you, Anytime that bass line comes up in the movie, regardless of what's happened, you could use that song to show somebody buying groceries. And I would still think like, <laughs> oh, motherfucker, it's on. Um, so like, <laughs> it's just, it's a bit of a mess, but I think it's a delightful movie. I think it's a lot of fun. And I think the good stuff far outweighs the bad. So Carmelita I know you said you hadn't seen it so I'm going to give you homework I'm going to tell you to watch this one far sooner rather than later because I do think even if you don't love it you will find plenty of things to dig in it
1: no I mean you don't have to tell me twice this is actually on my little watch list on Amazon it wasn't available there for a while because this is one that so many of my friends that we share a love of science fiction and fantasy love this film and so i'm very aware of it and for whatever reason had just never seen it and so it's been on the list and i just haven't gotten around to it and now i have no excuse because i've been outed publicly
0: yep and part of the reason that it's on and we'll talk about this a little more uh but part of the reason it's on amazon now is arrow video just put out a gorgeous 4k uhd of it that i watched in anticipation of this podcast, uh, a few days ago, and just uh, if you're 4K capable, man, this movie in 4K is is one of the most beautiful things you will ever see, and it is just absolutely stunning. So, I really do recommend that uh, that you check it out. I'm sold. Uh, see, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to sell people on things like Flash Gordon. <laughs> What's your second pick, Carmelita? Oh, this one's
1: epic. We're – I'm really hoping to get more people on board with the 1981 film Excalibur, directed by John Borman, uh, writing credits to John Borman, Rospo, and Pallenberg.
0: So let me interrupt this you. Is, let me interrupt you yeah. just really quick because as people know, uh, we went through 25 episodes without – Two people picking the same movie and having to exercise a wild card. Episode 26, Daniel Eppler and I picked the same movie. Episode 27, Robin Buckley and I picked the same movie. And episode 29, (laughs) ding, 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 Carmelita Valdez-McCoy and I picked the same movie. This was actually my second pick as well. I love that you picked this. Oh, no! That's that's all right. I I
1: love it. I love it. Great minds think alike, but this wasn't even the one I thought we would have in common. Well, so I'm, now I'm really curious.
0: Well, we'll we'll find out what happens. So um, anyway, yes, please continue on telling us about Excalibur.
1: Oh, Excalibur is a for the eyes. It's a, this is an Arthurian legend. It's based on a 15th century Archer, Arthurian romance by Sir Thomas Mallory, uh, The Death of Arthur. It's actually a French title, but I'm not going to. Embarrass myself trying to pronounce that in French. Um, it's the story of King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, which I think is a still a pretty well known story. It's been passed down through millennia, so it has all of the the things that you'd expect from an Arthurian legend: warring kingdoms, knights, star-crossed lovers. I think one thing that this version of King Arthur's story that I just really love and appreciate is that it highlights the dying of the old ways, the old nature-based mystic religions and the ushering in of the building of this United nation of Britain and this new religion that's taking hold. Um, There's just dreamy settings. It was um, filmed on location in Ireland, play of, light and shadow and color. They used um colored filters on the lights to give this green and blue glowing. It's just, oh, it's beautiful. It's really gorgeous. I like to call some of the costuming disco camelot, because there's a lot of Lame. There's a lot of metallic fabrics and sequins. But there's also they they had hired an armorer to create suits of armor. And so there's and there's different colors of of metal used kind of a more burnished silver and then a really high polish silver it's just gorgeous this cast is amazing and anyone looking this up on imdb will just be gobsmacked because it's all these names that we know and love but at the time that this was filmed a lot of the actors were stage actors they had didn't have film experience much film experience they had some tv and a lot of stage acting so Nicol Williamson plays Merlin, and for me, he is the... If you, if nothing else convinces you to watch this movie for first-time viewers, you need to see Nicol Williamson play Merlin, because he is the real ruler of Camelot in this film. I mean, he just has all the best lines. His delivery is just so charismatic and he's a little eccentric and you really get all of the the magic of merlin through his performance um gabriel burns is in this as uther pendragon arthur's father nigel terry plays arthur helen mirren a young helen mirren playing the uh vengeful sorceress morgana it's it's just a beautiful film it's a great adaptation yeah, no, it's just, I just,
0: I love it. And I was going to say, Helen Mirren, I think, is the other reason to watch this movie because she's Helen Mirren and she's amazing, but also uh, it uh, she's just absolutely stunningly beautiful in it and uh i had the risk of like overselling uh her but it's helen Mirren. she's she's just amazing in the movie and uh and i'm with you nicole williamson as merlin is is absolutely fantastic have you seen so i'm going to make a little bit of a side recommendation here have you seen the kid who would joe cornish is the kid who would be king i have not so it just came out a couple years ago it's a family film but it's deeply rooted in the Arthurian legend and it weirdly even though it's a family film it weirdly makes a great double feature with Excalibur it it, it would be the weirdest double feature for most people but I think it's a perfect double feature so I actually recommend that you check it out it's it's about a 10 year old boy that finds Excalibur and turns out that he is in fact the reincarnation of Arthur and his nemesis in school his bully turns out to be Lancelot, and it's it's a lot of fun and it's really good rebecca ferguson plays morgana so like there's another good reason to watch it so uh i recommend that one folks i can't add anything to what carmelita's already said about excalibur i think it's a it's a terrific movie it also makes excellent use of carl ors carmina barana probably better than any other movie or tv show or commercial because that that piece of music gets used a lot but it really makes great use of it absolutely if you like arthur or you're interested in Arthur, I think this is, there's been a lot of King Arthur movies. I would argue this is the definitive version. Would you agree or do you think there's a better one out there, even if it wasn't before the year 2000?
1: No, I would say this is my favorite. And I, I, I think in, in part two, because it, it spans the entire life of Arthur. Rather than it being just a piece of the story, like something like The Sword and the Stone, it's it's literally his entire life. And Nigel Terry plays Arthur as a teenager all the way until the end of his life. It's just, it's epic.
0: And epic is the right word. It's it's kind of one of those movies. It's It's interesting because it's already long at 140 minutes, but you actually still can't believe how much they cram into that 140 minutes. If I had a complaint of the movie, I actually think it could stand to be a little longer even. Um, I agree. Yeah, I I think there's definitely some stuff at the end. This isn't a spoiler because it's King Arthur. You know, the hunt for the grail, I feel like is a little bit rushed. Some of the stuff at the end comes a little, I could have, it could have used some more breathing room. If, If I have one complaint, I think that's it.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. And I, I think it was a tough sell back in 81 to have a movie longer than a couple of hours. Um, so I I and also here's a question for you. Have you seen the Excalibur behind the movie? It's a short documentary on
0: PBS. I have not seen that.
1: Oh, it's really cool. It's like a retrospective more than a than a straight up making of because I think if I remember correctly, there is an older kind of making of documentary, but this is like a retrospective. It's about 52 minutes long. And they have interviews with Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart is in this movie. We didn't mention that. With Helen Mirren, Nigel Terry, they got, they interviewed all these people. They interviewed John Borman, and they talk about how difficult it was to make this movie. They talk about the costuming and the music they used wagner quite a bit in this and it's just it's a really cool retrospective looking at at how the movie was made and and what it meant to the careers and the lives of the people that were involved
0: yeah i will definitely have to check that out you mentioned peter jackson and we we can't really i mean he's the 800 pound gorilla if we're talking about fantasy movies but i think it's right. it's interesting to note that Borman wanted to make Lord of the Rings and was unable to, and that's how he ended up making this instead. So if you are a Lord of the Rings fan, I think this movie is going to to be like uh, just a, a fine whiskey for you. It's going to go down really smooth, and you're really going to enjoy it. Agreed great recommendation. I am coming up with well, I'm not I'm I'm moving my wild card to the end. So I'm going to go ahead and recommend what would have been my uh, my third pick uh this time. And uh I think when we talk fantasy I know for me at least being a child of the 80s, I tend to think immediately of sort of sword and sorcery type movies. And if you're talking sword and sorcery type movies, there's really only one King of the Mountain. There were a lot of sword and sorcery movies made in the 80s, especially in Italy. Uh, Roger Corman made a bunch. uh, But the one that really stands tall above them all is the 1982 John Milius-directed based on the robert e howard character conan the barbarian for those who have never seen conan conan stars the almighty arnold schwarzenegger in his first real breakout role this is really the movie that made him set him on his path to mega stardom conan is a a starts as a young boy whose family is uh killed by an evil evil warlord named thulsa doom played by james earl jones conan ends up taking it, taken into slavery where he grows from a small scrawny little kid into arnold schwarzenegger and he ends up breaking free essentially and seeking his revenge along the way meeting up with uh, some some compatriots played by Mako, may he rest in peace, uh, former dancer and Broadway star Sandal Bergman. And they uh, they go after Thulsa Doom. Carmelita, have you seen Conan?
1: We're about to break another record.
0: <laughs> this is the second this podcast, Second one?
1: <laughs> yeah, this was going to be my third pick. And the reason I I was putting it as third was like, I had a feeling you might pick this one. And so I said, you know, I'm going to save it for My third pick, I figured if you were going to pick it, you would probably go with that right off the top. So it actually worked out pretty well here because I I wanted you to be able to talk about it, kind of take the lead on this one. But there was no way I wasn't going to put this on my list. I love
0: it. Yeah, I mean – if you're talking fantasy, you have to talk about this movie, right? Like, people would mm-hmm. people would blast us on Twitter if we did a fantasy episode and no one recommended Conan. Because it is, I think, arguably the best fantasy movie ever made. It's certainly one of the most influential. It created essentially an entire genre that lasted a decade. And it it created, you know, one of the biggest movie stars of all time i do have a bit of a hard time thinking that there's people well maybe not i mean that's why we do this show there's probably a lot of people who haven't seen this one but if you haven't seen it this is absolutely a a must watch if you're at all interested in fantasy it's got some great action it's it moves very quickly it comes in Just a little over two hours, but it covers so much of Conan's life and there's so many things that happen that you're never really without any type of thing going on very quickly. It is... The type of movie that we used to get in all the time in the '80s, in that it is unapologetically R-rated. Uh, we don't, we don't really get those kind of movies. You know, this was a major blockbuster. It came in with a smaller budget, but made four times its budget at the box office. So this was a big deal when it came out, and it was unapologetically R-rated. And it's just a lot of fun. It's there's there's so many quotable lines. You know. Anybody that's seen Conan, if you walk up to them and say what's best in life, they're immediately going to go, crush your enemies, see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of the women. Um, I mean, it's just (laughs) it is a pivotal, important movie in cinema. Uh, Carmelita, what do you want to say about Conan?
1: Uh, Oh, I mean, literally you and I could talk about this movie all day long. I, cause it's just, it is, it's, it's pivotal. And I, you know, for, for, for someone looking at this the first time, you know, I was, you know, I encourage everyone who hasn't seen this to see it, but also I would encourage anyone who maybe saw this 30 years ago or saw this as a kid and maybe their memory is a little fuzzy. Cause I think it's easy to kind of look at the, the image of this really bulked up, tan, greased up Arnold Schwarzenegger as the as Conan and think that the film is just about Arnold Schwarzenegger looking yoked. There's so much more to this. There's like this whole philosophical thread with the riddle of steel. Sandal Bergman's character, Valeria is such an amazing character. And a lot of times in these sword and sorcery, Stories, You know, there's, you know, a, a princess that needs to be saved, or there's um, concubines and harems and that kind of thing. But she Valeria, that character, she's very much of an equal with Conan. She is a master thief. She is a accomplished fighter. They fight side by side. It's There's just so many elements to this that I love. James Earl Jones, everyone needs to see James Earl Jones as Thulsa Doom. It is an incredible performance. Uh, such a memorable character. I I can't, I just don't even know what else to say other than do not miss this movie. And don't miss out as a first time viewer, don't miss out um as someone who might have seen this 30 years ago and kind of wrote it off cuz it there really is more there. It's awesome.
0: You're you're really spot on with that because I always think of the and again without with dancing around some spoilers of there is a god in the Conan world he's called Crom and uh, there's you know some really pivotal stuff in the movie as far as Conan reconciling whether Crom is there or whether he exists or whether he's going to help Conan that leads mm-hmm. to ultimately I think one of the greatest lines in the entire movie and one of the greatest scenes in the entire movie we kind of need to talk a little bit about John Milius who who directed this you know for those who don't know Milius is an avowed conservative filmmaker and he's conservative in a way that not what we think of conservative now. I mean, he's has his own, like, fallout shelter, doomsday prepper conservative. Um, and he is a very sort of man's man, but yet also still seem to have a keen insight into human behavior. You, you know, he helped co-write Apocalypse Now. He wrote and directed uh, Red Dawn, which is a a mess of a movie that likely will never get recommended here, but it's still a fascinating time capsule. He's he's a really interesting guy, but I think that he is, in fact, never better than he is in Conan, because I think the fantasy setting and the already sort of hard-edged, source material, because Robert E. Howard was also a very sort of man's man, really plays to his strengths. And and I agree with you, Carmelita, in that we actually get more fleshed out characters than we would typically expect, including Sandal Bergman's character. I, I really think this is a movie that if you just looked at the poster and you were born after the year 1990, you could easily write off you're really missing out on something if you do that. Uh, Ab- I, absolutely. Yeah, I just, I think there's a, a lot going on here. And on top of that, the movie just kicks ass. I mean, it's got it a killer Basil Polidorus, You know, One of the best themes, I think, ever recorded for a movie by Basil Polidorus. It's got some great action scenes. It just kicks all sorts of ass. So you're getting it really does. Yeah, you're getting an interesting movie and just a kick ass action movie. I'm great minds think alike. I'm I'm glad that one of us was gonna (laughs) recommend this one. Anything else you want to add?
1: I will give a recommendation. I'm talking about John Milius. There's a great documentary titled Milius. It's all about John Milius's career. Um, and the various projects he worked on and and about his persona and about kind of, you know, the the trouble that he ran into in the Hollywood system um, in the industry because of, you know, he's he's a very bombastic and a very controversial figure. Um, so there's, there's some great interviews in there from all of his contemporaries. They all kind of came up together. Coppola, um, Oliver Stone um, Spielberg, they're all interviewed there. Um, it's, it's a really great documentary. I, I believe it's available on Amazon prime right now.
0: We should also mention that Oliver Stone did help co-write this. And, and that's, what's yes. interesting is Milius is a, is quite conservative. Stone is known for being quite liberal yet. they're yeah. Both doomsday prepping men's men, mad men. So it it does show that, you know, when they can get together, they can actually create something spectacular. Like, I'm going to be honest with you, in 2020, everything about Conan the Barbarian should be off-putting. Everything about this movie should be off-putting. That's how you know it's that damn good, is that it's not off-putting. It's awesome. That is how I feel like, because there's nothing about this movie that I should be liking in 2020 yet i still absolutely love it same all right carmelita what is your third and final pick
1: i'm scared now
0: i can assure you that my third pick you did not pick i promise you that
1: (laughs) okay okay so this is a very personal pick And I would like to bring more people to watch the original Clash of the Titans from 1981. I love it. It's directed by Desmond Davis, uh, written by Beverly Cross, stars Harry Hamlin as Perseus. uh, And it's it's loosely based on the Greek myth of Perseus, mortal son of Zeus who embarks on an epic journey to seek out his destiny and save the lovely Andromeda from the wrath of the vengeful goddess Thetis. They're kind of loosey-goosey with the the details of, of the Greek myth of Perseus. You know this movie incorporates so many great characters from mythology. They created some original characters as well. It's just this it's this gorgeous epic journey. They they shot on location in Malta and in Spain so there are these beautiful landscapes. You know and this is 1981 practical effects, real extras, so any of, you know, they on their travels as they go into these, these ancient cities, it's all extras. That's not CGI. Um, This happens to have the distinction of being the last film that Ray Harryhausen worked on. I mean, that alone is a reason to watch it. If someone hasn't, you know, just so many memorable characters, Ray Harryhausen's effects are just the work. His creations are just so amazing. It's this movie, as a small kid, got me interested in reading Greek mythology. It got me interested in reading history. It's it's just gorgeous. Harry Hamlin looks like... A young Jim Morrison he's just he looks like he's chiseled <laughs> out of
0: marble. I'd never have it's, thought of that but you're totally right. he totally looks like Morrison. Holy shit yeah, that, that like just, just like has completely like changed Morrison. the way I watch that movie now.
1: <laughs> you will never see it the same again. Harry Hamlin looks just like a young Jim Morrison and it's so it, it gives it just this there's a mystique about him. he's flawless uh, Lawrence Olivier plays Zeus. Um, And he he plays it with this twinkle in his eye. You know, we get in this story all of the capriciousness of the gods and how the gods interfere in the lives of mortals. It's just a really fun story. Maggie Smith plays Thetis and she's great. Ursula Andress plays the goddess Aphrodite. uh, And she, I believe, was dating Harry Hamlin at the time. Another shout out for a character is the character of Calibus, who is, I believe, an original character. Neil McCarthy plays him, and and I, I don't want to spoil anything about Calibus, because if you've never seen this, I feel like you need to see this character in action. But it's just this is a movie that, as a kid, just set my brain on fire. I had never seen anything like it, and it was really foundational for me into seeking out more of these types of epic stories
0: yeah i love this recommendation this was one of the many movies that came out in the wake of star wars trying to because hollywood is always playing a catch-up game right and and mm-hmm. so they were trying to figure out what properties do they have that they could turn into the next star wars and You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Hollywood. This is why, when people are always bagging on how bereft of creativity Hollywood is now, I'm like, man, you need to study some more film history because they've always been bereft of creativity. This is one of the ones that I think really, really worked. You know, you can see the Star Wars stuff because there's he's got I, I'm drawing a blank on the name of his little owl uh, friend. That's essentially, you know, his R2-D2. Boobo. That's essentially his R2-D2 and, and, and stuff like that. You mentioned Harryhausen somewhere, not on this podcast, but somewhere in Ocala, Florida. Dana Buckler just stood up because somebody mentioned practical effects. And and he's like, his his practical effects radar went off because this movie is (laughs) filled with some of the most gorgeous practical effects you will ever see. I mean, Harryhausen's a legend for a reason, but he went out on top. The Kraken at the end of the movie, which isn't really a spoiler Mm -hmm. because that's the whole not really the movie is <laughs> you know we got a kraken in, in pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest that can't hold a friggin candle to the kraken that harry hausen came up with for the end of this movie every the, the the medusa is just stunning like every single special effect in this movie is staggered it Cost somewhere between nine and fifteen million dollars to make it made seventy million dollars at the box office. That is an astounding return on investment. This thing was huge. We are of similar vintage, and this movie was absolutely pivotal when I was a kid. I, I loved this. I probably dragged my parents to it three or four times in the theater, let alone how many times. I made them watch it once it, it came out on video because it came out, you know, I, I think we maybe got our first VCR in like 1983, 1984, somewhere around there. And again, this was one that we constantly watched. I, I love this recommendation. This is such a fun film and, and such a an example of what Hollywood can do at its best. This movie never should have worked. It was a blatant attempt to rip off Star Wars, and yet everything about it is just aces. It's it's absolutely a, a great time to to watch this movie.
1: Oh, I'm so glad that you enjoy it as much as I do, and we do. It sounds like we have a similar history with it because we just we just watched it over and over and over again. And I'll I'll tell you, I I still watch this fairly regularly. And even now, entering middle age, even now, after, you know, 20 years of really great CGI effects out there, the stop motion animation in this still just takes my breath away. I love it.
0: It's just, it's so good. And and what's so nice about something like stop motion is, you know, I'm not the anti-CGI person that the namesake of the podcast is, but (laughs) there is such a tactile feel to stop motion, even though it's usually done with green screen and compositing and stuff like that, you know, because you don't build the Kraken that they built is obviously not three stories tall, but there's still such a tactile feel to it. It's the same reason I love the Godzilla movies, you know, even though it's just a dude Mm -hmm. in a suit kicking down cardboard buildings. It's tactile. It, he's wearing an actual suit and he's kick actually kicking down something. And and that's just so hard to replicate in CGI. At least the way that so much CGI is used. Uh, and this is this is arguably I think kind of the the last big blowout for stop motion and what a way to go out. This is just such a visually impressive movie. And and to think of how Harryhausen and his crew spent their careers, just move a little bit, take a shot, move a little bit, take a shot, move a little bit, take a shot. Like the tediousness and it's impressive. It's why I I still am so happy that uh, Ardman Animation is still doing their stuff Mm -hmm. because they still do. Claymation, and and they still basically use the same techniques. And the one thing I will say about CGI is I worry that some of these classic techniques are going to just get lost to history. I hope that never happens because in the right hands, they're just as impressive as anything you'll see in in a Marvel movie.
1: No, absolutely. And and I, too, you know, I enjoy CGI. You know, there's an incredible artistry to that. It's just different. And, you know, I, I can fully enjoy both when they're well used, even better when you can have films that that incorporate both practical effects and some computer graphics. So, you know, but I yeah, this film is kind of the last it's kind of the last of an era. But I, I, I agree with you. I hope that there are still that there are still folks that are, are working in this medium of stop motion and doing effects like this. Um, Just to keep it alive, if anything else, um, because you never know. It, it could always make a resurgence. Everything old is new again at some point.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be, you know, uh, I'm a big horror fan, and, and there's always a resurgence. You know, in horror, there's always a focus mm-hmm. on practical effects. And so, yeah, hopefully people are are keeping up with it. Carmelita, we wouldn't be the 20th Century Movie Club if I didn't ask you... Your thoughts on the 2010 remake. Uh,
1: well, I never saw it. Um, <laughs> I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I'm, I'm kind of an asshole like that. I'm a little bit of a purist and I get a little stubborn. I'm working on letting that go and being a little more open-minded to remakes. Because as you mentioned... Remakes are a part of Hollywood history all the way back and through film history, the same ideas kind of get redone. So I did not see it. Did you see it? what did you think?
0: I saw both it and its sequel. Um, Oh, they're fine. (laughs) Um, I'm well on record as not being a Sam Worthington fan. And this was back Mm. when they were trying to make Sam Worthington a thing. Uh, They're, I guess fine. They're, not good they're they're certainly not the they bring nothing new to the game and Mm -hmm. they don't improve upon the original in any way or even really do anything interesting or unusual uh with it uh so i would say that you are just fine uh having not seen either of them stick with the original
1: (laughs) Okay, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't miss anything.
0: All right. Anything else you want to add?
1: No, just everyone should give it a shot.
0: All right. So I'm going to move on to my last pick. I think this is one that you probably haven't seen, although I could be wrong, and most people haven't seen because there is zero reason that anybody would have watched this. But I am also the guy who recommended The Wraith and recommended Rocktober Blood and recommended a lot of, shall we say qualitatively questionable movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I also mentioned In Conan the Barbarian uh when we were talking about that, that 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 movie spurred an entire genre of sword and sorcery movies. And one of the guys who dove into that was Roger Corman and he made a a just a a grundle of sword and sorcery movies uh in Argentina did it his Corman way. He reused sets. you know, he, he would build a set and then film like five movies on the same set. And most of them were bad. And most of them were unmemorable. One of them was, and this is not my recommendation, but one of them was a movie in 1983 called Deathstalker. Now, if you've never seen Deathstalker, it's it's fine as a sword and sorcery Conan knockoff. It's pretty sleazy, which you'd expect from Corman in the eighties. There's nothing memorable about it. However, in 1987, Corman brought on director and writer Jim Wynorski to make a sequel called *Deathstalker II: Duel of the Titans*, and that is my final recommendation. Because of all the Conan knockoffs. I am of the opinion that Deathstalker 2 is by far and away the best. And the reason for that is because Wynorski is, at his heart, a sort of comedy guy. And so what he did was instead of making yet another Conan knockoff, he made a swashbuckling action comedy in Conan sort of dress uh it stars john treleski as the the main character known as Deathstalker. he's hired to uh rescue a princess played by monique gabrielle and everything about this movie is just a delightful amount of fun here's what you need to know about how much fun this movie is they include outtakes in the credits no serious sword and sorcery movie is going to include outtakes in the credits carmelita have you actually seen <laughs> death stalker 2
1: i've never even heard of it
0: i didn't think you would have but this is your fault for picking excalibur but none <laughs> <laughs> but, but nonetheless i this is a movie that i really want to draw people's attention to It it it's it's a low budget Kona knockoff, but it really is I first saw this I want to say probably in nineteen ninety two I rented it on video back when you could rent you know video stores would do the five movies for five days for five dollars kind of and I was just absolutely blown away with how hilarious this movie is and how charming and likable John Terlesky is the lead is because Rick Hill that plays Death stalker in the first one is just your standard. Arnold wannabe he's dull 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 Turleski's built like Tom Cruise and he kind of looks like Tom Cruise to be honest with you and so it's not what you'd expect the lead of your sword and sorcery movie to be but he's just charming and likable and and everybody in this movie you ever watch a movie Carmelita and you're like I can tell everybody in this movie's just having fun and that fun mm-hmm. becomes infectious right Absolutely. This is one of those movies. This is one of those movies where everybody's just having a lot of fun making this movie. And so it meets all the fantasy tropes. It does everything it's supposed to. It's a Corman movie from the 80s. So, of course, there's cut dudes and naked women. It's got everything you could want out of a cheap fantasy Conan knockoff. But much like we said when we were talking about Conan... There's so much more going on here, and there's so much more interesting. Now, Jim Winorski is a name that some people might recognize. He is a low-budget schlock master. He's made a lot of really bad movies. He works fast. He works cheap. This is one where he got a little bit of a budget and a little bit more time, and it really showed what he could do, because I really do think this movie is is terrific. It's a lot of fun. So... I hope you watch it. I hope the people listening didn't just hit stop on the podcast as soon as I recommended (laughs) it. Um, Because this is a movie that I want more people to check out because I I think it's a lot of fun. So, yeah, I'm assuming you probably don't have a ton to add since you haven't seen it.
1: I haven't, but I did just as you were talking, pull up a search and I'm looking at images from this, you know, just stills in the poster. And this looks fast like this. It looks fun and i'm i can't believe i never even heard of it that's insane cuz we loved stuff like this as kids like red sonia i'll give a shout out to red sonia a little bonus shout out is is another one of those kind of conan knockoffs that just i just adore so there yeah there were a lot of those and i yeah i'm not familiar with this at all
0: it's one that is you know it's there's a handful of people that have seen it i know some people prefer the first one i am not that category i will also say there are four Deathstalker movies. None of them are really related. So don't feel like you have to get involved in the Deathstalker cinematic universe to watch Deathstalker 2. And in fact, you probably should just skip the other three. Uh, you can just go straight to this one. This is by far and away the best of of the series, uh, for me at least. I think it's... It's just, it's a, it's a fun way to kill 85 minutes. And that's the other thing. It's 85 minutes. It gets in and out. It gets, it gets its job done. John Terleski's gone on to become a fairly well-known, or not well-known, but fairly successful television director. He's directed a handful of movies. It rides on his shoulders, and he just steps up to the plate. I mean, he is absolutely a movie star in this movie. Please check it out. I, I think you'll really. I
1: will. Take it. I will add it to my my homework my homework list.
0: Yeah, yeah. I uh, I actually this is going to upset people, so I'm going to say it quietly. <laughs> I like this one better than Flash Gordon. So if you have to pick one, watch this one.
1: Oh wow! No, yeah. I'm going to watch both. <laughs> I'm going to the- watch both. There's no question about that. But that that's interesting. Now I'm like really. Really curious to see where I'll fall on these.
0: I kind of am glad you picked Excalibur because this was my wild card. And I was like, when am I going to be able to justifiably talk about Deathstalker 2 on the 20th Century Movie Club? Hopefully Carmelita. Today's the day. Yep. Hopefully Carmelita <laughs> picks one of my movies and then I can. Because oh, you know, it's a wild card. What can I do? I had to make it up on the fly. All right, Carmelita, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. As always, folks, we will tell you where you can watch these movies. We use the Just Watch app and website. It's not sponsored. We've just found that it is the most accurate way to find where these movies are streaming. As a disclaimer, as always, that is at the time we're recording. So if you want to find these movies, make sure to double check Just Watch before you go on Amazon and yell at us because it's no longer on Amazon. So, Carmelita, where can people find your three recommendations?
1: Yeah. So Legend from 1985 is available for rent or purchase at Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube TV, and Vudu. Um, and I will also point to the Blu-ray, the Ultimate Collection Blu-ray is awesome if you, you know, got a little money to spend. It's not too pricey. Excalibur from 1981 is available to stream with a subscription if you have stars. Uh, or you could rent it on Amazon Amazon Prime Video, uh, Google Play, YouTube, or Vudu. And last but not least, Clash of the Titans from 1981, you can stream that with a subscription to Netflix, or you can rent it on Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, Voodoo, all the all the usual suspects.
0: All right. Thank you for that. So Flash Gordon is a, not streaming anywhere for free, but it is available for rental or purchase on every major streaming platform, Amazon, iTunes, Voodoo. I mentioned it earlier, but I do want to shout out the the arrow video 4K is stunning so if you have the means to watch 4k and the money to buy it, by all means pick that up. Conan is streaming on Stars. So if you have either a Stars subscription or you have the channel, the Amazon channel for Stars, uh, you can watch it there. It is also available for rent or purchase anywhere you might want to find it. Death Stalker Two is actually. Kind of the easiest one to find. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. It's also streaming on Tubi, uh ad supported, but totally free. So if you have either a Prime subscription or you're willing to put up with a few ads, you can see it for free. Shout Factory also put out a Blu-ray of Death Stalker and Death Stalker 2 that's pretty well done. It's no Flash Gordon, but I mean we can't really expect Death 2 to get the Flash Gordon treatment. Either way, it is uh, very easy for you to find. So please check it out. And I can't believe I'm about to say this, but do <laughs> at me if you watched it because I really want to know what people think of this movie. This is maybe the boldest <laughs> pick I've made <laughs> on this show so far. I love it. Um. All right, Carmelita, plug some stuff. Where can people find you?
1: Oh, well, you can find me on Twitter, always on Twitter, also on Letterboxd at Carmelita says.
0: And uh please if you're not following Carmelita please follow her she uh is always posting delightful things and quite frankly is just a fantastic human being that you should be friends with. So uh Oh
1: thanks friends. The feeling <laughs> is mutual.
0: You can follow me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter. You can also follow me at Hibachi Justice on Letterboxd, where you will find the continually updating list of the movies we've recommended on the 20th Century Movie Club. So you can go and see... When we've recommended a particular movie, you can follow Dana at Dana Buckler show on Twitter at the Dana Buckler show on Instagram. You can find our Facebook group on Facebook uh, slash Dana Buckler show. You can find the podcast. Anywhere that podcasts can be listened to. Uh, we pretty much at this point, I think, stand on street corners and play it uh, because we <laughs> want people to hear it. Uh, if you can't remember all these links, you can also just go to linktree slash Dana Buckler Show and find us there. Uh, so please check us out and follow us. Carmelita, thank you so much for joining me on this. This was a blast. I had a great time talking fantasy films with you.
1: Me too. Thanks so much for having me back.
0: Happy to do it. And I think it's probably not going to be much of a surprise to anybody, but we will have you back probably sooner rather than later. I'd love it. All right. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Mike Scott for The Dana Buckler Show. Thanks for listening.